Since President Trump's election victory, we've heard experts proclaiming that it was Trump's blue-collar appeal that led him to the win. Free trade left Americans and Rust Belt states behind. Trump promised to quash that free trade. Government subsidies went only to the areas beyond the horizon. Trump promised to bring them back. A solid mix of democratic redistributionism and protectionism brought these voters home to the Republican Party. But now a new study says the real reason so many white blue-collar workers went for Trump had nothing to do with their hillbilly elegy economic status. Instead, the data show that these voters were simply alienated by the cultural myopia of Democrats who have focused on an intersectionality-laden definition of American politics, labeling straight white men the bad guys in their bizarre morality play. According to PRI The Atlantic, a new model has been developed to measure the five most significant factors leading to support for Trump among white working-class voters. The first was obvious. identification with the Republican Party. But the second was fear of cultural displacement. The data showed that white working class voters who say they often feel like a stranger in their own land and believe the U.S. needs protecting against foreign influence were 3.5 times more likely to favor Trump than those who did not share these concerns. This is where the Democratic Party has truly gone off the rails. By trotting out Hollywood celebrities who deride flyover America as a bunch of Bible-thumping simpletons, more and more Americans feel alienated inside their own country. And no Lena Dunham speeches and Laverne Cox diatribes are going to reverse that. In fact, the more Dunham and Cox are thrust to the fore by Democrats, the more people will vote Republican in Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And the third factor in the study, support for deporting immigrants living in the country illegally. Voters who supported deportation were 3.3 times more likely to express a preference for Trump than those who did not. This was Ann Coulter's thesis, and it was right. People feel that the culture is changing in the United States not only due to the acidic effect of leftism, but due to the left's overt desire to change American culture through unfettered immigration without concern for assimilation. Workers in Ohio aren't all that concerned about losing their jobs to illegal immigrants, but they are concerned about losing their country to people coming from lands that do not share the same basic values. The fourth factor, disdain for higher education. Again, this is a cultural hallmark, not an economic one. According to PRRI, quote, white working class voters who said that college education is a gamble were almost twice as likely to express a preference for Trump as those who said it was an important investment in the future. That has less to do with people disdaining an engineering degree than people seeing that liberal colleges have become breeding grounds for anti-American globalism and anti-traditionalism. The notion that these blue collar workers were deeply concerned with trade and subsidies is belied by the fact that the fifth factor evaluated under this study, economic hardship, actually actually correlated in reverse fashion with Trump voting, quote, being in fair or poor financial shape actually predicted support among white working class Americans rather than support for Donald Trump. These people, the people the media have suggested were completely taken in by Trump's man of the people shtick, were actually 1.7 times more likely to support Hillary Clinton, all of which suggests that the call from moderate Republicans to embrace democratic economics is a fool's errand and that dumping the Reagan combination of social conservatism and free markets won't actually guarantee a winning combination in the Rust Belt. Trumpism is less about Trump than about rejection of Obamaism and Clintonism, and that is a very good thing for conservatism and for America. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. All righty, I want to get to the latest from the Yates-Clapper hearings that happened yesterday. We're also going to be talking about some amazing comments from Condoleezza Rice. We'll be talking about the latest on Trump Care and Jimmy Kimmel and all the rest of it. But first, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at My Patriot Supply. So right now, there's a lot of talk about North Korea and the threat of North Korean nuclear missiles reaching American shores sometime in the near future. Well, if that happens, you're certainly going to want to be somebody who has an emergency food supply on hand. Or if you're just worried in 
general about the possibility of natural disaster, if you're worried the federal government sucks at its job, which you should be since they do, then you need to go to preparewithben.com, preparewithben.com, 888-803-1413, and get your four-week emergency food supply for just 99 bucks plus free shipping. Four-week emergency food supply. People at the office have tasted it. They say that it tastes like home cooking, and it lasts for years, so you don't have to worry about buying it new every year. You buy it once, you forget about it, and then you remember it when the zombie apocalypse happens. Preparewithben.com, 888-803-1413, 888-803-1413. Most states have some sort of disaster warning system, um, and most of them say that you're supposed to have some food on hand in case something goes back. Here in California, we obviously worry about earthquakes, and people are supposed to have a certain amount of canned food in their house, or at least preserved food in their house. My favorite supply is preserved food. They make sure that you have good tasting food if disaster should strike again. It's a four week emergency food supply for just 99 bucks, 99 bucks plus free shipping. Prepare with Ben.com. You're going to want to make sure you have that long term emergency food supply on hand. 99 bucks is not a lot of money to guarantee safety for you and your family. Okay, so the big story of the day yesterday was, of course, the Yates Clapper hearing. So Sally Yates was the former acting attorney general uh, under Attorney General Sessions. Uh, she was there for a very short period of time because he recused himself in the Trump-Russia investigation. And then she had said that she was not going to defend the Obama, the, the Trump executive order with regard to refugees, with regard to travel ban. Uh, and he fired her for good reason. So she is coming back now and she's testifying. And she's testifying because the Democrats think she has secret information linking Trump to the the Russians. James Clapper, who is the head of the intelligence agencies under Barack Obama, he was also called before Congress to testify about the supposed Trump-Russia connections. And there was nothing new, really, as far as the Trump-Russia connection. So the idea that there was all sorts of new material being broken about Trump and Russia, that suddenly they dropped a bombshell that said that Trump was indeed colluding with the Russians in order to fix the election. That didn't happen. That led President Trump to do what I thought was actually the most suspicious thing about Trump-Russia connections that I've seen, and that is he changed the header on his entire Twitter feed. So President Trump has, what is it, 24, 25 million Twitter followers at this point on this particular account. You know, a stunning number of people follow President Trump on Twitter. And he changed the entire header on his on his uh, on the top of his Twitter feed. He changed it again this morning to remove the tweet. But yesterday he had this picture of him with the entire Congress, basically. And then it said, Director Clapper reiterated what everybody, including the fake news media, already knows. There is no evidence of collusion between Russia and Trump. That's what it said on the top of his Twitter feed. Now, if that doesn't sound suspicious to you, that's because you've never heard of the Streisand effect. The Streisand effect, of course, is named after Barbara Streisand. She apparently wanted to keep the beach in front of her house clear of, for, for her view. And so she had tried to stop people from building in front of her house, even though she's obviously super rich and can afford to drive down to the ocean. And uh, she made a big fuss over people finding out about this. She sued some news outlet, and this, of course, made it a huge story. The, the Streisand effect applies here, too. When th- This is sort of the equivalent of Richard Nixon putting I am not a crook at the top of his Twitter page. It's just not smart. Even if it's true, it's just not smart all the way through. He was tweeting incessantly about Yates yesterday. He said the Russia-Trump collusion story is a total hoax. When will this taxpayer-funded charade end? Biggest story today between Clapper and Yates is on surveillance. Why doesn't the media report on this? Hashtag fake news. Sally Yates made the fake media extremely unhappy today. She said nothing but old news. Well, it's not totally true that she said nothing but old news. She sort of confirmed some stuff that we already knew, which is true. But the fact is that it's a mistake for Trump to be 
commenting publicly about this sort of thing because all it does is drive more attention. It makes people feel like the lady doth protest too much. In any case, Sally Yates was testifying before Congress yesterday, and here was sort of the big news portion of what she had to say. It's about Mike Flynn, the national security advisor, and she's obviously been called in because she was the person who supposedly warned the Trump administration that Mike Flynn was in a compromising position because Flynn had been paid by the Russians and he had been talking to the Russians and therefore he couldn't be trusted with national security secrets. Here was Sally Yates. We weren't the only ones that knew all of this, that the Russians also knew about what General Flynn had done. And the Russians also knew that General Flynn had misled the vice president and others. Because in the media accounts, it was clear from the vice president and others that they were repeating what General Flynn had told them. And that this was a problem because not only did we believe that the Russians knew this, but that they likely had proof of this information. And that created a compromise situation, a situation where the national security advisor essentially could be blackmailed by the Russians. So this this is what people are latching onto on the left today was that Flynn was compromised. She told the Obama the, the Trump administration that Flynn was compromised, and then they waited 18 days to fire Flynn. They futzed around. They pretended that nothing was wrong, and so this has created some serious questions about why they didn't fire Flynn earlier. And those questions, I think are legitimate. I don't think that's an illegitimate question. Once you inform somebody that there's a member of your team who might be compromised by foreign intelligence services, it seems to me that you'd want to move a little bit faster than three weeks on that sort of thing. It is not proof, however, that Trump was colluding with the Russians. And in fact, there really is no evidence of collusion. James Clapper, who is the head of the intelligence agencies under Obama, he came forward and he said that there was no real evidence of collusion, or that at least that he had none. This is a clip. The intelligence community assessment concluded first that President Putin directed an influence campaign to erode the faith and confidence of the American people in our presidential election process. Second, that he did so to demean Secretary Clinton. And third, that he sought to advantage Mr. Trump. These conclusions were reached based on the richness of the information gathered and analyzed and were thoroughly vetted and then approved by the directors of the three agencies and me. Okay, so he comes forward, he says that there, there really is no evidence that he's seen. Sally Yates then tries to walk that back a little bit, and this is what the media are hanging their head on today, because Trump is hanging his hat on the Clapper comment here, that there is no evidence of collusion. The media are hanging their hats on the, on the idea that Clapper didn't know about an FBI investigation that was ongoing into possible collusion. Here's Sally Yates saying that yesterday. If I could try to clarify one answer before as yeah, well, because sure. I think Senator Grammy may have misunderstood me. You asked me whether I was aware of any evidence of collusion, and I declined to answer because answering would reveal classified information. I believe that that's the same answer that Director Comey gave to this committee when he was asked this question as well. And he made clear, and I'd like to make clear, that just because I say I can't answer it, you should not draw from that an assumption that that means that the answer is yes. Okay, fair enough. And I also think, if I may, sir, that this illustrates what I was trying to get at in my statement about the uh, unique position that the FBI, FBI straddles between intelligence and law enforcement. Okay. I just want the country to know that whatever they're doing on the counterintelligence side, Mr. Clapper didn't know about it, didn't make it in the report, and we'll see what comes from it. Um, Ms. Yates, what did you tell the White House about Mr. Flynn? I had two in-person meetings and one phone call with the White House counsel about Mr. Flint. Um, the first meeting occurred on January 26. I called Don McGahn first thing that morning and told him that 
I had a very sensitive matter that I needed to discuss with him, that I couldn't talk about it on the phone, and that I needed to come see him. And he agreed to meet with me later that afternoon. Okay, and so what she is saying now is she's denying what Clapper had said, which is that he saw no evidence of collusion. So Yates is saying there might be evidence of collusion, but that's classified. The, the way that Trump solves all of this is by just declassifying the material. Right? Trump is the president of the United States. He has the capacity to declassify. If he wants to declassify the material, he certainly can, and he probably should at this point if he wants all of this to come to an end. It's a very weird situation where you have members of the intelligence community who are basically coming forward and creating the appearance of smoke without any evidence of fire. And that's what's happening here. Sally Yates, who obviously is a political figure, she makes a bunch of political points in this particular testimony. Uh, she went at it with Senator Cruz over the travel ban, uh, and people were saying that she destroyed Cruz over the travel ban. She did and she was citing a different provision of law than Cruz was citing. That is the entire legal debate over the travel ban. She is a political actor. To pretend that Sally Yates is not a political character is just silly. James Clapper also is a political actor. But this is why it's sort of dangerous to, number one, have political actors in positions of power and intelligence. They have the ability to see intelligence that we don't see. And number two, then to question them in an open forum because what you end up with is a situation where they say, well, we have a secret, but we can't tell you. And all that does is it leads people to believe that there's something nefarious going on without any actual proof of anything nefarious going on. Now, remember, no matter what Sally Yates said here or what Clapper says here, no evidence has actually been presented of collusion between Trump and Russia surrounding this election cycle. But that doesn't seem to matter to the media. They're jumping on the idea that Yates is not willing to just say there's no evidence to say, well, that means there must be evidence. Well, it works both ways. I mean, if it's classified material, it's possible that she, can say, she can't say that there's no evidence because it's still in the process of investigation. So, again, this sort, of, this sort of politicization of intelligence is really, really dangerous. It's been happening under Obama. It's now happening under Trump. And, uh, and it's not leading people to have any confidence in these agencies. If Trump really wants all of this to go away, he should be moving swiftly to have his people going through whatever intelligence they have security to see uh, and security clearance to see and then reveal it as fast as possible because the American people do have a right to know about all of this stuff. Now, the stuff that Trump does want to focus on is the stuff with regard to unmasking. So if you remember, the case that Trump was making with regard to the intelligence community is that while Yates and Clapper may be focused on Mike Flynn being complicit with the Russian gang and while they may be concerned about Trump-Russia while that may be the priority of the left, the priority of the right is that the, the Obama administration was unmasking Trump officials in an attempt to basically target them for leaks. So the idea would be that they saw a communication that was masked, and it said something like, Russian ambassador Sergei Kislyak was having a conversation with unnamed American citizen one. And unnamed American citizen one said X. And so the Obama administration said, OK, we want to know the name of unnamed American citizen one, and then we can leak it to the press. That's the accusation that Trump is making anyway. Both Yates and Clapper yesterday admitted to viewing unmasked Trump campaign communications, meaning that they saw materials that had members of Trump's name, his team's names on them. That's not illegal, by the way, but it is a problem when you have Susan Rice and members of the Obama administration going out of their way to deliberately unmask only American citizens associated with the Trump campaign. That is the big debate, and we'll see both sides of it here. Here's Chuck Grassley. Did either of you ever review classified documents in which Mr. Trump, his associates, or members of Congress had been unmasked? Oh, yes. You have. Can you give us details here? In this no, I can't. Ms. Yates, have you? Yes, I have, and no, I can't give you details. Okay. 
And she's obviously very happy about not being able to give details uh, because she doesn't want to give details, obviously. Uh, Clapper then went on and he said that, you know, to pretend that it was just about Trump campaign being unmasked, lots of people get unmasked under, under, this regi- under the, the way the law works. My former office publishes a report on the statistics of how many U.S. persons' identities are unmasked based on a collection that occurred under Section 702 of the FISA Amendment Act, which I'll speak to in a moment. And in 2016, that number was 1,934. So here is the takeaway. We don't know. We don't know more yet today than we did yesterday. In fact, in some ways, we know less today than we did yesterday. The, the rationale being that on the one side, as I say, the, the right is trying to claim there's no Trump-Russia collusion. And then you have Sally Yates saying, well, there might be material there, but I can't talk about it because it's classified. So we don't actually learn anything there. There's a lot of smoke for the left to play with, but no fire. On the other side, you have the right saying the Obama administration unmasked all these members of the Trump team. They apparently wanted a FISA warrant against a member of the Trump campaign, presumably Carter Page. And the left is saying, well, we unmask lots of people. So again, smoke, no fire. So lots of smoke everywhere and no fire. Again, this is the problem when intelligence becomes politicized because there really is no way once the intelligence is politicized for anyone to trust what's coming out of the intelligence community absent mass declassification. And that's probably, unfortunately, what has to happen here now because no one trusts the intelligence services all the way through. The, the other story that was being pushed by the left very hard yesterday was the story that said that Obama had warned the Trump administration about the dangers of Mike Flynn, that Mike Flynn was actually compromised by the Russians. No evidence that Obama actually warned Trump about this before Trump nominated Flynn to become NSA. And in fact, the, the Trump administration basically said that Obama didn't like Flynn personally, and that's why he was complaining about Mike Flynn. Sean Spicer came out yesterday, and, uh, and he talked about what Obama had actually said to Trump about Mike Flynn. The president doesn't disclose details of meetings that he has, which in this case was an hour-long meeting, but it's true that the president made it, President Obama made it known that he wasn't exactly a fan of General Flynn's, uh, which is frankly shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that given that General Flynn had worked for President Obama, was an outspoken critic of President Obama's shortcomings, specifically as it related to his lack of strategy confronting ISIS and other threats around uh, that, that we're facing America. So the, the question that you have to ask yourself really is if President Obama was truly concerned about General Flynn, why didn't he suspend General Flynn's security clearance, which they had just reapproved months earlier? Additionally, why did the Obama administration let Flynn go to Russia for a paid speaking engagement and receive a fee? I mean, there were steps that they could have taken that if, they, if that was truly a concern more than just a person uh, that, that didn't had bad blood. Okay, and that's exactly correct. Good for Sean Spicer for calling it out. The media headline yesterday that it was such a disaster that that Obama had warned Trump and Trump didn't take the warning. A lot of us were warning that Flynn wasn't a good pick. That's not the same as saying here's some specific intelligence saying that Flynn has been compromised by the Russians. For the stupidest reaction to all of this, we can always turn to our good friend Chris Matthews over on MSNBC. Man, it comes out of the show. Come in the morning. Comes out of the show. Come on in there. Talk about Trump, Russia. Yates, you know I hate Yates? He doesn't hate Yates because Yates is a political hack. He hates Yates because Yates is a girl. That's what I think. Go! Trump Watch, Monday, May 8th, 2017. Well, today Donald Trump found himself against a prosecutor who should scare the daylights out of him. I'm talking about Sally Yates, the former acting attorney general who dared to blow the whistle twice in his face. First, she informed Trump's White House lawyer that the director of national security might be up to his neck with the Russians. The second strike was calling out his notorious Muslim ban as a violation of the First Amendment, which bans the government from recognizing an official religion. And both those 
charges by Yates against Trump make him look bad, make her look very good. It could be the last part making Sally Yates look good that's driving the man in the White House up a wall. Remember how, as Senator Elizabeth Warren once wonderfully put it, he can't stand the fact that he's losing to a girl. Okay, and and so I love that everything for the left always comes back down to that same argument about how Republicans hate women and they can't stand losing to a girl and all of this routine. And then they wonder why Trump won. Trump won mainly because of stuff like this from Chris Matthews, just silliness. Okay, so I want to talk about the latest on Trump care. I want to talk things I like. Condi Rice did something amazing today that I want to talk about uh, and some things that I hate as well. But for all of that, you're going to have to go over to dailywire.com, become a subscriber. $8 a month gets you a subscription to dailywire.com. If you want an annual subscription, then you can buy that over there, and you get a free copy of the Arroyo border film set on, set on the southern border, fictional film. Uh, it's an action western about a rancher who's trying to defend his land from people who are attempting to cross it from drug cartels. Uh, really good movie. Go over to dailywire.com right now and become a subscriber for that. You can watch the rest of the show live. In a couple of days, you can be part of the mailbag. We only answer your questions if you're part of the mailbag, so if you want to be one of the lucky few. Go over to dailywire.com right now and subscribe. Or if you just want to listen later, go over to iTunes or SoundCloud and download the show. Subscribe and make sure that you leave us a review over at iTunes. We always appreciate it. This is the largest conservative podcast in the nation. Now on to Trump care. The, the left continues to maintain that Trump care is a disaster area. Everyone's going to die because of Trump care. It's, it's, a, it's, it's obvious that Trump should be blamed for everything. Bloomberg is already blaming Trump for rising premiums, even though Trump hasn't really done anything yet. Here is the fact. Trump care has not passed yet because there is still another entire body called the Senate. It has to take up Trump care. And Mitch McConnell is already signaling that the version of the American Health Care Act that was put into place by the House or that was passed by the House is not actually the version that is going to be approved by the Senate. In fact, the Senate is going to make substantial changes to it. There's a fundamental and urgent choice at the heart of this debate. We can continue with the status quo under Obamacare, and we know what that looks like. It means even higher premiums. Even fewer choices, even more insurance companies pulling out, even more uncertainty, and even more chaos. To those who've suffered enough already, my message is this. We hear you, and Congress is acting. I commend the House and the administration for making this important advance last week. Now the Senate will do its work. The administration will also continue doing its part to deliver relief and stabilize the health markets as best it can. This process will not be quick or simple or easy, but it must be done. It won't it's be quick. The and there's this warning, right? So that means that there's going to be a lot of hubbub. It means that the, the AHCA is going to see some significant changes already. I'm sorry to play you 35 seconds of Mitch McConnell there because that causes people to drive off the road in their cars to burst into flame from sheer boredom. But nonetheless, it is important to recognize that for all the triumphalism from the right and from all the bewailing and bemoaning of the left, nothing has actually happened here. That doesn't stop the unearned moral superiority, however. Jimmy Kimmel made a big deal. We talked about this last week. He made a big deal out of the fact that his kid had had an open-heart surgery at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles. 
Uh, Vaughn Starnes did the surgery. I talked about the fact that my daughter uh, had had a uh, an open heart surgery. Same surgeon, same hospital, wonderful hospital. It is a charity hospital. Two hundred and thirty three million dollar budget every single year to supplement the people who are coming in with their health insurance and through Medicaid. Uh, and a huge percentage of the people who are coming into CHLA are coming in through Medicaid. Well, Jimmy Kimmel did a monologue last night in which he quote unquote apologized for having uh, stood on his uh, his personal situation in order to promote Obamacare. And of course, he did this routine where he said that he should not apologize for anything because he's just a good person. Now, this is from this is a real headline from The New York Post. Jimmy Kimmel's obscene lies about kids and medical care. This is from something called The Washington Times. I don't think it's a real newspaper. But shut up, Jimmy Kimmel, you elitist creep. I cannot count the number of times I've been called an out of touch Hollywood elitist creep this, which I have to say, I kind of appreciate because when I was a kid, we had like we had to drink the powdered milk because we couldn't afford the liquid. Our orange juice came frozen out of a can. It would squeeze out. My father, on the rare occasion we took a family trip, would hide the dog in the back of the car and then smuggle it into our motel room to avoid paying the two dollar pet fee. So I have to say my dream was to become an out of touch Hollywood elitist. And I guess it came true. It's so crazy to hear something. And, and I would like to apologize for saying that children in America should have health care. It was insensitive. Uh, it was offensive, and I hope you can find it in your heart to forgive me. There's okay, so th- this is the unmoral superiority part. So, first of all, I think a lot of those headlines are really dumb. You know, the people on the right don't know how to deal with people on the left who, who are using emotional arguments. And so people who are saying Jimmy Kimmel is an elitist creep, you know, that, that, I think that was a Charles Hurt column from, from the Washington Times. Really, really stupid headline. Bad angle. The fact is that Jimmy Kimmel, what makes him elitist is the fact that he's able to afford all of this health insurance that's, that's wonderful. But then he talks about Obamacare being wonderful. He's never experienced Obamacare. He never will experience Obamacare. Obamacare has raised premiums on an enormous number of people who've been thrown off of their health insurance in favor of inferior plans, including Medicaid, which has been shown not to actually increase life expectancy among the people who are covered by Medicaid. So it's elitist to promote Obamacare while not actually having to use it yourself. But it's not elitist to talk about how your kid has suffered. And it's certainly not elitist to talk about your policy preferences. Uh, it is elitist, again, to suggest that your situation uh, has any market impact because of Obamacare, because it really doesn't. I mean, that's just ignorance. But the the problem with this is that this is how the left likes to play things. So the left likes to play things, and the right has bought into this, as I discussed yesterday. The left likes to play things like, our only agenda is to get kids health care. And then the right says, how dare you? That's a stupid argument. And then the left says, see, you don't want kids to have health care. And it's like, no, we want kids to have health care also. But what you are guaranteeing them is not health care. It's a really crappy form of health insurance that actually is not going to cover better care over time. What you actually need is more health care, not more health insurance, more health care. Right? We can all guarantee a right to bread today. That's not going to create one more loaf of bread anywhere in the United States. What you need is more production of bread that brings down the price. And then if you want to get people access to that bread, we can talk about whether we subsidize people's access to that bread. But that is not the same thing and suggesting that there's a quote-unquote right to bread, and that magically materializes the care. Okay, if you want doctors like Vaughn Starnes to actually be working, you know, for, for, to, to help people like Jimmy Kimmel or to help my daughter, then they need to be paid lots of money because there's really only one Vaughn Starnes. He's a fantastic doctor, and I guarantee you the guy is not driving a Mazda Miata. I mean, he, he, he's, he is driving, I'm sure, a very, very nice car because 
when you put that much time into your into your job and when you are the only person who can perform certain types of surgery, you ought to be paid a lot of money because the demand is high and the supply is low. And the only way to decide how to allocate the supply to the demand other than slavery, other than stealing people's labor, is through a free market system. But again, the right doesn't really understand that, and so they need to be better about discussing this. Kimmel had on uh, this, this senator named Bill Cassidy from Louisiana yesterday who had said that Republicans should apply the Jimmy Kimmel test. Basically, if Jimmy Kimmel isn't happy with it, then we shouldn't do it. That's foolishness, but again, Republicans have fallen into this foolishness all the way through. Okay, time for some things I like, then some things I hate, and then we will deconstruct a little bit of culture since it is a Tuesday. So, things that I like. This week I've been doing things I like about things I hate. Yesterday we did the Cubs. Today we're doing Silicon Valley. So, I don't hate Silicon Valley. They, they make an, uh, an amazing product, obviously. They, they generate enormous amount of, of knowledge, and, and they add enormous variety and efficiency to our lives, for sure. I'm, I run a website, so I can't rip Silicon Valley. But there is an attitude in Silicon Valley that you can rip, and that is the, the attitude that suggests that we are here to help the people. Right? This idea like these people who are actually there to create profit and better products and better services, we're actually there to do the world some good. This is the, this do-gooderism that you see from, from Google. Whenever they put up this Google icon, sometimes they put up a different Google icon. It's always some lefty icon they put up on Google. It's never a tribute to Winston Churchill or anything. It's, it's always a tribute to some socialist who lived 56 years ago and died in a prison somewhere. It's, it's really irritating. So Silicon Valley, this is the show from HBO by Mike Judge. Mike Judge, I believe, is a conservative, or at least a closeted conservative. And uh, I'd been told about this show many times that it was really, really funny. And I had been wary of watching it simply because I'm not that interested in the goings-on in Silicon Valley. The other night, my wife and I were looking for something to watch, and I said, okay, well, why don't we try this series, since I keep hearing that it's really funny. It is the funniest comedy I have seen in 10 years. It is a hilarious show. And it's hilarious because it pokes fun at exactly the pretensions that I'm talking about. Half the show is dedicated to the fact that these are all basically techie geeks who pretend that they care about how the world is working while they are actually the most capitalistic individuals in the history of humanity. Here's a little bit of the preview from season one. If you want to live here, you've got to deliver. Like Steve. Jobs or Wozniak? Steve Jobs or Steve... No, I heard you. Which one? Jobs. Jobs was a poser. He didn't even write code. Silicon Valley is the cradle of innovation. Your compression algorithm blew our engineering team away. We have the resources to take what you have done to the global level. I'm prepared to give you $200,000. $600,000 for 10% of your company. $10 million. We had a guy in here in almost the exact same situation. Take the money or keep the company. He shot himself because he turned down the money? Yeah. Or no, no he took the money. Or no, no, he did not. I don't, you know what? I don't remember. But whatever it was, he regretted it so much that he ended up shooting himself, and now he's blind. For thousands of years, guys like us have gotten their kicked out of us. Oh. Get the out of here. What if we built our own company? Ultimately, what we're trying to do is, uh, well, I guess... <laughs> you remind me of my son. He's got Asperger's, too. Oh, oh no, I don't... What do you guys do here? What do we do? All those you porn ones and zeros streaming directly to your shitty little smartphone. Every dip his pants if he can't get Skrillex in under 12 seconds. It's not magic, it's talent and sweat. That's what the boy we do. It's a really, really funny show. Uh, and uh, it, the whole thing is about how socially awkward these guys are, and they are tech geeks. And every, like, the, the, the first shot of the show is Kid Rock performing on stage, and it turns out it's in somebody's backyard and nobody's watching him. It's really, really funny. 
Check it out. Obviously not for the kids. You can see from the, the cursing that we had to bleep out. But uh, Silicon Valley, best comedy on TV. Uh, really, really funny. Okay, other things that I like. So Condoleezza Rice made a point yesterday that I have been making now for months, or years actually. And that is that this, this newfangled attempt to get rid of Confederate monuments, to chisel Woodrow Wilson's name off of buildings, to tear down Thomas Jefferson's statues, it's actually stupid. And the reason that it's stupid is because it actually obfuscates a conversation that we should be having about history, the nature of it, how it impacts us today. Now, the left likes to basically wipe away history. They're trying to say that history no longer... It's funny. On the one hand, the left will say history has an impact. The reason that a disproportionate number of black people are poor is because of American history. And there is, a, there is some truth to that. But then they claim it's because of ongoing discrimination, which is not true. On the other hand, they then want to wipe away all of these hallmarks of the American past. They want to get rid of these statues of Confederate generals because they say that they're racist. It has always seemed to me that one of the great things that happened in the aftermath of World War II was the preservation of the, of the buildings at Auschwitz the way that they were. And the reason that that's a great thing is because it's important that people recognize what had happened, be able to visit it, and be able to see what had happened. It seems to me the same holds true in American history. We should be discussing the ins and outs of the Civil War. You know, President Trump is wrong. We discuss these things every day in the intellectual community and in the general historical community, and they should be discussed every single day. Condoleezza Rice makes that exact same point, but it's taken more seriously from her, obviously, because she's a black woman who grew up in the Jim Crow South and was friends with some of the girls who were victims of the Birmingham church bombings. As an African-American woman, do you see yourself in this Constitution? Do you think that uh, when we look at nine of our first 12 presidents as slave owners, should we start taking their statues down and saying we're embarrassed by you? I am a, a firm believer in keep your history before you. And so I don't actually want to rename things that were named for slave owners. I want us to have to look at those names and recognize what they did and be able to tell our kids what they did and for them to have a sense of their own history. When you start wiping out your history, sanitizing your right. history to make you feel better, it's a bad thing. But let me just say one thing about our Constitution. That Constitution originally counted my ancestors as three-fifths of a man. Mm -hmm. And then in 1952, my father had trouble registering to vote in Birmingham, Alabama. And then in 2005, I stood in the Ben Franklin room, one of our founders. Mm -hmm. I took an oath of office to that same mm -hmm. Constitution and it was administered by a Jewish woman Supreme Court justice. That's the story of America. The long road to freedom has indeed been long. It's been sometimes violent. It's had many martyrs, but ultimately has been Americans claiming those institutions for themselves and expanding the definition of we the people. Does it make you think less of, should we think less of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson because they were slave owners? Well, they were people of their times. I wish they had been like John Adams, who did not believe in slavery. I wish they had been like Alexander Hamilton, who was uh, an immigrant, by the way, a, a, child, a child of questionable parentage mm -hmm. uh, from the Caribbean. I wish all of them had been like that, and, and Jefferson in particular, a lot of contradictions in Jefferson. But they were people of their times. And what we should celebrate is that from the Jeffersons and the Washingtons as slave owners, look at where we are now. 
Okay, and I think that all of this is inherently correct. I think that you know, when she says there were people of their times, it is important to recognize what the times were, and that's why it's important to learn history. Good for Condi Rice. Uh, this is a very intelligent statement of how history ought to work and why it's stupid to tear down your history. They say about the Soviet Union that in the old joke about the Soviet Union was, in the Soviet Union, the future is known, it's the past that keeps changing, meaning that there would be an official who fell out of favor and he'd be disappeared from photos. Uh, the, all the people who remembered that history would be taken out and shot that's something that we can't have in the United States, not just the killing, obviously, but the whitewashing of history, the attempt to wipe out history, the attempt to pretend that history uh, is entirely bad or history is entirely good. History is a little bit more complex than that. Okay, other things that I like. So I thought this is hilarious. There's a, a Palestinian hunger strike that is going on right now, and the Palestinian Arab population has voted for Hamas. They voted for the Palestinian Authority. Uh, they are a radicalized population. The Pal- the, this is Marwan Barghouti, who's an actual convicted terrorist. He was leading a Palestinian hunger strike against supposedly inhumane conditions at Israeli prisons and human rights violations and all this. Okay, here is a tape of him eating in the middle of the hunger strike that is supposedly going on. There he is. You can see he's unwrapping some cookies. And uh, he's eating in the bathroom over here. (laughs) And there we go. That hunger strike is going very, very well for Marwan Barghouti. Again, it's amazing that the, 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 the entire world is, is buying into this whole, there's a hunger strike going on, and there's Marwan Barghouti, the leader of it, this grand, great leader, uh, eating in the corner of the bathroom. I do love that. It does demonstrate the hypocrisy of the, the Palestinian Authority position on virtually everything, particularly on this hunger strike. But in general, there's this hypocritic, hypocritical position about Israel's an apartheid state. Not one Jew lives under the auspices of the Palestinian Authority, because if they did, they would immediately be murdered. So the whole thing is ridiculous. Okay. Time for some things that I hate. Let's do it. So there was this viral video that was going around of a kid telling off Donald Trump. It turns out that the kid is not actually telling off Donald Trump. Here is the video. You want to take a picture with me? A total? Let's just do it and then be done, okay? What a wonderful little girl. I am a disgrace to the world. Okay, and obviously that is not Trump. Obviously that's a Trump impersonator. It was going along around the internet suggesting that 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 was actually Trump because they just took like the clip from the beginning where you can only see his back. One of the more irritating things about the about the left is the need, and, and some people on the right, the folks over at InfoWars, and the need to take things out of context and then pretend that they are real. Uh, in fact, Gateway Pundit ran a story the other day in which he labeled a, there's a parody account of Sean Spicer, and he ran it as though it was actually Sean Spicer tweeting. Okay, there's no need to do all of this. The left loves this sort of thing. A little girl telling off Donald Trump, ooh, isn't that naughty? They have this thing, and I've talked about it many times on the show, where they try to use children as political propaganda tools. Uh, it's really gross, and I don't like it any better here than I, than I would, even if it had happened in real life. Okay, other things that I hate. Kamala Harris is our idiot senator from the state of California. She was the idiot attorney general here before that. Now, she's now being sued for not doing her job, basically. And Kamala Harris uh, was doing a segment on a lefty podcast, and she dropped the F-bomb. And here's what it sounded we, like. The, essentially, fundamentally, the problem is that they, I believe this is, I believe this is an issue of values. They believe health care is a privilege, not a right. right. And this is that. a matter of values. And so if you can pay for it, you can get it. Like this guy, who, this congressman, that, you know, so you might as well say, well, people don't starve because they don't have food. What the is that? <laughs> okay, and, and the fact that she drops the F-bomb, 
the f first of all, using the f bomb is a lazy way of getting a laugh. Just in general in comedy, yeah, I, I did a, a shoot with uh, with a comedy star who is now going to have a show on Comedy Central. I did a, a shoot with him recently, and it was sort of a it's not for airing. It was sort of a trial run. We did it as a favor, uh, and half of his jokes were just dropping the f bomb, and it, it's not something that I think is smart comedy. Smart comedy does not require you to drop the shock line of the f bomb. It's really silly. But this is what the left now thinks of themselves. To show that we're cool, to show that we're hip, we're actually going to hijack Trump's vulgarity. We're not going to. We're not going to say that his arguments are bad. We're going to say the F word, and that's going to fix things. Tom Perez has been doing this as the head of the DNC. This is not how they're going to win anybody back. In fact, it's going to make people in those blue-collar communities in the Midwest more uncomfortable with the left, not more comfortable with them. Kamala Harris is uh, is a very bad senator, and this is a very stupid way of going about trying to fight the right is by dropping an F-bomb every which way. Okay, time to deconstruct a little bit of, of culture. So, Every Tuesday here, we deconstruct some culture. Normally, we break down a song, uh, we go through the lyrics, um, but this week I wanted to go through a couple of things that happen in pop culture, um, because pop culture is, is seen by vastly more people than political culture is, which is why we now have a pop culture president of the United States following another pop culture president of the United States. One was a president who made himself into a pop culture icon, one is a pop culture icon who made himself into a president, um, but... Pop culture matters a lot more than political talk because more people know who Justin Bieber is than know who I am, even though I've got a few IQ points on Justin Bieber. In any case, a couple of things happened this week that are worthy of comment. First, Chris Pratt, who I generally like. He's a fun actor, um, versatile. Uh, he's, he's enjoyable to watch. He cut a video where he said that there was there that he wanted his fans to turn up the volume and listen and not just watch the subtitles on a video. And this offended some members of his audience who were deaf or hearing impaired because he said to listen and turn up the volume and not just watch the subtitles. This is the essence of stupid. This is the essence of stupid, okay? The fact is that we use words all the time that exclude people who may not be capable of fulfilling those words. So if I say, watch the podcast, if you want to subscribe to watch the rest of the podcast, oh no, apparently I am harming the visually impaired. Or if I say, listen to the rest of the podcast, Oh, no, I'm harming people who are deaf. Or if I say, why don't you go over and read over at my website, over at the Daily Wire, read a piece that I wrote, or at National Review, a piece that I wrote. And now I'm harming the illiterate. This idiocy that suggests that because you're using a word that is understood by 99% of the population, that now you have to apologize for offending the other 1% of the population when you're not even in intending to offend them and saying something non-offensive is really stupid. But Chris Pratt still had to apologize, and he cut a video apologizing. He's performing sign language now. In, in which he apologizes for people who can't see, and for the blind. Uh, in which he is apologizing for having offended people for saying, listen and turn up the volume. And look, Chris Pratt is super likable, and he knows he doesn't want to alienate his audience. But this sort of ridiculous sensitivity is just insane. He's saying that he wants everybody to read the message that he that is below, and then there's a message below that talks about how sorry he is that he offended all of these people who are hearing impaired. Again, if we're going to take offense at everything, then we're not going to be able to have a common culture, because the fact is that everything is offensive to someone. This video is not offensive to me in the sense that I'm like going to lose sleep over it, but it's offensive to my sensibilities in the, in the basic notion that it's just stupid, okay? It's not Chris Pratt's fault. I'm sure it's his publicist's fault, but it's dumb anyway. Okay, other things that are incredibly dumb. So the MTV Awards happened the other night, and the MTV Awards, number one, gave a standing ovation to Maxine Waters. Maxine Waters is one of the more despicable politicians of my lifetime. She's now been called anti-Maxine. This is something the left 
has been doing lately. They call Ruth Bader Ginsburg the notorious RBG as though she's a rapper. And now Maxine Waters, they're calling her anti-Maxine because she says stupid things about Trump all the time. When she was at the MTV Awards, she was called by Tracy Ellis Ross of Blackish, quote, an extraordinary example for all of us, especially in these times. Why? Because she says that Trump should be impeached and implies that he's colluding with Russia without any sort of evidence that that is, in fact, the case. She says that Trump colluded with the Russians, quote, with the Kremlin to undermine our election system and thus undermine our democracy. She has demonstrated no evidence of this whatsoever. And then she says that he is indecent and that he has no values. Just a note about Maxine Waters. People who are saying she's courageous, she lives in a D plus 29 district, the most Democratic district probably in the country, or at least one of them. The chances that she'd be defeated by anybody else are insanely low. So it's, it takes no courage at all to say things that your constituents like. She is a person who called the L.A. riots alternatively a rebellion, an uprising, and an insurrection, a milestone in the history of black people demanding justice. Fifty people were murdered in the L.A. riots. A billion dollars in property damage was done during the L.A. riots. Reginald Denny was beaten near to death during the L.A. riots. And she said, quote, what I didn't do is use the airwaves to call people hoodlums and thugs for burning down their own communities. It only makes them matter when you call them hoodlums and thugs, as the president did. And she says that Trump is indecent. She accused the CIA of smuggling drugs into the black community. When she was a member of the House Financial Services Committee, she tried to set up meetings between the Treasury Department and a bank in which her husband was a major stockholder, because she's super corrupt as well. She said that she wants to nationalize the oil industry in the United States. Okay, this crazy lady is now considered anti-Maxine by the cultural crowd, but that's not the stupidest thing that actually happened at the MTV Awards. The stupidest thing was Emma Watson won the first gender-neutral acting award, and here's some video of it. Actress Emma Watson took home the Best Actor Award for her performance in Beauty and the Beast. The Golden Popcorn was the first ever genderless trophy given out at the reinvented MTV Movie and TV Awards. In her speech, Emma couldn't contain how grateful she was to accept this honor and why it's so meaningful to her. But to me, it indicates that acting is about the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes. And that doesn't need to be separated into two different categories. Emma continued her sentiment with a powerful statement saying, quote, empathy and the ability to use your imagination should have no limits. Emma was also thrilled to have Orange is the New Black star, Asia Kate Dillon, present the award to her. So much so that Emma paused mid-speech to run and give Asia a hug. Emma ended her lengthy speech by switching gears and admitting yeah, that The whole thing is really stupid. Okay, so the, the, the person who gave her the award was Asia Kate Dillon, who is a non-binary presenter meaning that she doesn't identify as male or female, I guess, or she's female, but she doesn't consider herself fully female or something. Okay, number one, there's no way that Emma Watson should ever win an acting award. She's a terrible actress. Okay, number two, the idea that we shouldn't have separate male and female categories for acting, that it's terrible to have separate male and female categories, to pretend that male roles and female roles are the same is a conceit of the modern Hollywood mind. It's the same sort of thing that says that Men are looking that that people are looking for action stars who are w women to to kick three hundred pound men through glass plate windows in the same way they're looking for men to do that. You have to suspend disbelief to do that. Female roles and male roles are generally different. To pretend that they're exactly the same is really silly. If you want to group all the actors and actresses together and then say who gave the best performance this year, I'm actually not, I don't object to it that much. I don't think it's that stupid. To pretend that men and women are the same for purposes of doing this or that you're doing something for non-binary people by doing this is really stupid. By the way, you know how hard it is for them to come up with Best Actress nominees every year? And the fact is that they're just, I mean, this is not a rip on whether females are capable of acting. It is to say there are not that many interesting female roles, even in leftist Hollywood, and that means it's very hard to come up with women who deserve to be nominated, which is why Meryl Streep has been nominated every year since 1833 for Best Actress. 
you can name the best actors in the business. It's kind of hard to come up with actresses who are really good. Uh, you know, Scarlett Johansson is a good actress, but she's constantly cast in, in bad movies. Um, you have people like, um, uh, well, what's the name of the gal from Hunger, Hunger Games? Um, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, who is a mediocre actress, and she's treated as a great actress. Emma Watson, who's a bad actress and treated as a great actress. All of it's very silly. But this idea that you're taking some sort of step forward, that you're doing some, that some genderless awards are a step forward for women. Yeah, women are not going to feel that way when it turns out that the men are winning all the awards because men get juicier roles and because it turns out that there are a lot of male actors who are absolutely fantastic and who deserve to win more than Emma Watson deserves to win. Okay, so we will be back here tomorrow with more. Uh, and um, presumably, I think that there's going to be more fallout from the Yates and, and Clapper hearings, uh, and we'll bring you all of it. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. <laughs> We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.